All right. Hello and welcome to another episode of Courageous Conversations. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mahan. I'm joined today by Jeff and Celia to have a conversation about finding that balance point between showing up with compassion versus setting clear boundaries and taking care of your own mental and emotional health. Because you see, whenever you're engaging with someone, and we're going to use the example here of online, because that seems to be what's happening these days, but of course it implies in person. But when you hear somebody sharing ignorant or bigoted views, you have a choice in how you're going to respond. You can engage in compassionate, non-judgmental dialogue to understand why the person believes what they believe and get them to clarify some things and maybe share your perspective with them back. Or you can tear into them and berate them and tell them just what kind of person they are and just what's wrong with what they're saying. Or you can just ignore them, pretend you didn't hear them, didn't see them, scroll on by, or even the, the more advanced version of ignoring is you can completely block that person and no longer ever again see any of their hateful, ignorant comments, views, posts, etc. So the question is, when do you employ each strategy? Because one thing that I've spoken on quite a bit in this podcast is how important it is that we do engage in difficult conversations, non-judgmental conversations with patience and empathy and compassion, because that's the only way that people ever see the light is by being helped to see the light by someone else. Because if you don't do that, we end up in echo chambers. I have a whole episode, literally like, a, I don't know, 45 minute long episode going into why it is so important for us to have these difficult, courageous conversations. I'll, I'll link to that in the recorded version of this. You can go watch that episode. Um, but in this conversation, it's not so much about my views. I'm going to be talking to Jeff and Celia about how they see it and when they see it as uh, appropriate and important to use courageous, compassionate conversations versus when, you know, self-protection and protecting your own mental and emotional health is important. And when drawing a hard line and a boundary, you know, kicking back or pushing back on what someone says when that's important. So I guess as a, uh, you know, a bit of a disclaimer here, this conversation is meant to be valuable to anyone who is forced to come in contact with people whose views make them angry. So it doesn't matter what your political orientation is or what your views are. There are people online who, when you see their views, you're going to have to choose to either, again, attack them, ignore them, or help them see the light. Now, the three of us here are left-leaning progressives. So most of our examples and most of our language will reflect that. Um, but trust me, you could be a libertarian and still benefit from this episode. You could be you know, a Republican and still benefit from this episode because we all have to make those choices about how to engage when we see someone spewing something we consider wrong and ignorant online. So with all that being said, Jeff and Celia, I would love to know from you guys, from your perspective, why would you ever engage in empathetic, compassionate conversation with someone whose views are ignorant and bigoted? Jeff, do you want to take it? I can go next. After you, Celia. Okay. So um, thank you for that question, John. I was thinking about it uh, this whole morning and... Um, there's always something that you want to initiate in your conversation, you know. Um, so I want to introduce myself so that the audience would know my perspective. Um, I am an Asian immigrant. I identify as a trans person of color. And I have gone through uh, so many situations in my life where I have been marginalized, though I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a musician, I'm a dad, um, a father of a 21-year-old daughter. I still you know, one identifies dad for her. And I'm mad at, um, but in, in spite of all that, you know, people only look at me as a trans person. And uh, all the, and also I'm a Christian, you know, I'm a evangelical Christian. I belong to the evangelical Christian community. Um, having um, the second generation Christian in my family, my dad was a Hindu and he was a convert. 
It makes so much sense for me um, in order for me to really believe in some of the aspects that both sides think about, you know, when you're talking about Bible or your political views. Because um, I have a lot of friends um, in my own circle. They come home and we all eat together on the same table. 50% of my friends are Republicans. So I do have a point of view. Always I'm thinking about why do I, how do I communicate without prejudice? How do I communicate without, you know, just fear? But I think one thing that I found was the bottom line in most of these conversations is fear. A fear of, hey, you know better than me or I know better than you. I don't want you to convince me or you don't have to be convinced. There's always a little subtle feeling of fear that happens or it runs in the minds of people. And that could lead to a lot of things which could probably go beyond their personal boundaries. And um, most of the time, in my opinion, people are hurting. You know, as human beings, we are all hurting. And sometimes this hurt can go in terms of words. It can be in terms of action. It can be in terms of different um, responses. Like when they see a trans person, they get angry at the trans person because you should not exist. I've had people come and call me faggot uh, when I was driving, uh, when I was walking on the road in Pennsylvania. I have people call me, you know, hey, go back to your country. A lot of things have happened. But there are times when I need to protect my own core personal self, which is more important. And that's where I think if we are not called to be in that space, it's so important for us to make sure that we are not in those conversations. Um, what I mean is if you're not called to be an advocate, if you're not called to be an activist, don't do that because it's hurtful. It's, it's tiring. And so it's so important because as a trans person, I need to advocate for myself every day. Um, it becomes tiring. And my friends ask me, they say, you know, Celia, how do you do it? How do you wake up every day? And when, when you go to the grocery store, when you're driving to the you know, gas station, people look at you and they make these comments. And how do you manage with that? And I keep telling them that, you know, sometimes I only believe that sometimes, someday that these people will learn to be empathetic towards people like me. It's not me, but people like me. And that's where I just wanted to leave this conversation here from Jeff. <laughs> you know, your perspective as well. Yeah, no, I, I love what you just said, especially around the fear part, right? You know, my my dad is from the Caribbean. My mom's from the Philippines. I grew up in, you know, a predominantly white suburb of Chicago where, you know, I just had to like deal with everyday racism. After a while, it just became like a normal thing, you know, and all the microaggressions and everything that I had to deal with that. And now I help navigate really difficult conversations at companies and, and it's tough. And, you know, I mentioned this to John before, but I recently uh, did an experiment where I had a conversation with someone that was far right leaning and I'm far left leaning, you know, on YouTube in front of all of her, you know, YouTube live people. And it lasted three hours, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh. But it, <laughs> Cecilia said, you know, a lot of what we were first talking about was on a surface level, how we were almost scared of one another, scared of each other's opinion, and almost like this person's about to, to attack me. So almost that first hour was just like getting over that fear. Then that second hour was like, okay, let me try to actually understand you. 
you know? And third, like, okay, is there any way in which there are any values that actually align? Like where there's gotta be something, because I remember when I used to do a ton of campaign work, it's not as bad out there when you're actually knocking on doors than when you look at it on TV, people are nuanced. Right. And I remember I, li you know, I've lived in the Bay Area for so long and it was just like, I can't believe 71 million people voted for that man. I'm just going to give up on those 71 million people. That's 71 million people. Mm -hmm. okay? And everyone has a totally different reason for why they chose to make that decision. And we have to be able to recognize nuance and not like set ourselves up as the as the hero all the time and everyone else as a villain because that's like come on that's that's what we did when we were like five and we're better than that yeah absolutely uh, one of the points that i wanted to also make is um there was one situation in my life where i you know as you've shared about the youtube i had one situation where um, the mayor of our, our city was not willing to give us a proclamation during Pride season. Um, it's just that he's a mayor of the city, and every mayor of the neighboring cities were giving, calling us, and saying, "You know, we want to recognize the LGBTQ community, and we want to give you the Pride proclamation." Mm. And they did not want to do it. And this man did not want to give us. I'm not going to take names, but he didn't want to give us in, in our hand because to him. He was a senior pastor of a church and he believed that it was against his faith. But this is a city, a mayor of a city, and you're not talking about some pastor in a church. So I was uh, conflicted in my mind as to what would I do? And a lot of people in our city were like, what on earth is this man doing? You know, let's all revolt and let's all go stand and make a big noise. And they called me and said, Celia, you need to come. You know, you have to be a part of it. And I, I was leading the LGBTQ, so I went with them. I went to the city hall. I took a piece of paper. I note my name down and said, I want to speak. Right. And um, they were like, okay, are you sure you want to speak? Um, because everyone is very angry. You know, we all want to yell at this man. And so I said, sure, let me do it. So I went and stood. And um, they said, you know, you got a minute. And I looked at him and said, sir, I live in this city. I'm a dad. I have a child who is 21 years old. And she grew up in the city. My wife lives here, I work here. This is not the life that I chose, but this is my life. I want you to know that, sir, I'm a Christian as well, like you. I respect your biblical views, but I want you to know that in Bible, there are people like me that's quoted. And I want you to be more compassionate as a pastor and as a Christian. And I would love for you to do this next year, even if not this year. And I just said that and I walked from that room and his secretary came running behind me um, and she said, hey, come, I'm mean, sorry, ma'am, um, can you, um, whatever you did, keep doing. And that's what is important. I want you to know that. And I walked out of the room and my friends were like, what did he do? You know, I was thinking to myself as to if you want to change a person, go to the point, just go down to the bare bones and tell this person that I love you in spite of what you are, but I hope you are you would change your views. And that man was looking at me. He didn't have any words and I could see him smile. And he was just staring at me and thinking, oh my God. And I wrote a letter to him and I thanked him for the time that he gave me. And was I, uh, you know, did I have prejudice? Of course I did. 
because he did not recognize a person like me. There are 30,000 people like me in that city. We live here. But he just completely dismissed us because of his biblical values. And when I confronted him based on the biblical values that he had, it made most sense. But not all of them are Christians, right? We are not dealing with people who are Christians. But there are times when we are having co-workers. There are times when we are having you know, folks who are just next to us or on the internet who are trying to be, hey, I don't care who you are. I don't care about your faith, um, but I don't like you. You know, that's I faced a lot of person. In fact, in my post, recent post on uh, major um, on uh, Marjorie Tyler Green, I had written that she said, you know, male and female, and this is science. And I had posted that one. And I, if you go uh, to my post and if you look through that, you will see a lot of people who have commented in such a negative way. And there was one man who said, this is none of your business. And he's a retired person, and he wrote to me saying that it's none of your business, and it's so, sh and this is how the world is. You better accept it. And he just wrote it, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to respond. If I was the same Celia two years back, unfriend, unfriend, <laughs> you're out of my book. And I was feeling sorry for that man because he's a retired person. He seems to be well educated. And I was thinking, what do I tell him? And I didn't have any words, you know, like. I, I hope uh, he will read through the post and he will understand, you know, at least you can't completely bring them from the positive to the negative or from the negative to the positive, but bring them somewhere in between. Park them in a neutral zone and you have to come to the neutral zone as well. Right. And that's the important part where both have to come to this neutral zone and then say that, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep my views, just I'm going to park and I want to listen to you. Right. Why do you hate me if you right. don't know me? And that's what Daryl Davis told the Ku Klux Klan um, leader. And it was so powerful to me. I want to ask that question as to why do you hate me? Because you don't know me. Right. 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 I mean, uh, uh, so many things come up. I love this. I love this conversation. Um, and I got chills when you shared, you know, what you shared, you know, um, at the town hall meeting, there's such a lack of humanity right now for us trying to understand one another. And mm -hmm. I think of my play uh, mentor, Gwen Gordon, that talks about how, you know, people either live in a world where they see it as a playground where they're able to explore. Many people live in a world where they see it as a proving ground where they have to constantly get validation from others. And then there's a lot of people that live in what we would consider a battleground where everybody's a threat. And, you know, for some people on, you know, both opposite extremes, they see everyone as a threat. And it's a really sad, scary world for them to live in, but that's their world. So when I hear people say like, I hate you, or I don't like you, what I'm really hearing themselves them say is, I don't like myself. I hate myself. There's a part of me. You are triggering something in me that I have not addressed. And I think I forgot. Uh, I think it was Yogi Bhajan that said this, but something around, you know, people's opinion of you has more to do with their relationship with themselves than with with you. Right. And mm -hmm. and I remember when I would do a lot of campaign work, we utilized um, Marshall Gans, uh, a community organizer, Harvard professor, who did this whole story of self strategy for the Obama campaign. And it was all designed off of 
of stories of self where the strategy was we would practice for a day just working on our three minute story of self to understand like why what am i doing here why am i part of this campaign and then working on the story of us of like how are we all connected and then finally the story of now of like okay how, why do we need to take action right now and working on those stories was so powerful, not only because you then connected your values with everybody else in the group, but when you went and knocked on doors, I remember this guy came out. I was in Oregon in this really far right-wing Republican uh, trailer park area, and this guy came out with his shotgun and his, you know, flag waving and um and his dog comes out and i'm freaked out and i'm like i'm gonna die in south oregon this is how this is gonna end for me this is so disappointing i did not plan <laughs> he comes out and he smiles at me and he's like hey obama i love obama so like, no you don't know what people are you know, and and where they stand until you actually ask. And I think we're not leading enough with curiosity <laughs> and being open to experimenting and doing what you did, Celia, because we want to be right all the time. And my friend Eric Bailey always says, like, in any conversation you have, you either choose to be right or you choose to understand. But you can't do both. And we want to do both. We want to be, we want to feel like we're, at, you know, at the best level while also pretending that we understand. And we just can't. You just got to choose. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. The person said, I love Obama. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, if I'm going to die. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> no. I was going to die. Now I'm hugging this man with tobacco, you know, in his, in his beard. It's great. <laughs> no, I know. Um, I've been in one situation in Arizona where um, I, I think I had talked about it on um, LinkedIn as well. This person was um, cutting my car and, you know, in one of the intersections and he stopped his car, looked at me and said, uh, go back to your country. And um, that's the time I was thinking maybe I should say something to him. And, um, and I did not want to say anything because I was scared. Now, those are situations where you don't have a rational conversation with a person who is like really angry. Right. And it's always good to kind of leave that space mm -hmm. and just, you know, protect yourself first because those are certain areas where sometimes I feel like, you know, when you are an activist um, and you want to prove your point, right? you're really not proving your point. Right, right. And it's just like, well, what's your goal? Like, like really, and, and is your goal realistic right now? Because if mm -hmm. he cut you off and you turn to him and be like, let's have this argument, what's the likelihood that he's going to be like, you know, you're right. I should just, I don't know what I was thinking. But like, <laughs> strive for that all the time, right? We're always striving for that, that one Hail Mary moment when they will turn to us and be like, you are so right and I am so wrong. And that's just not how it plays out. I don't think I've anyone that I've ever come to a, a, a basic understanding with has never told me I'm correct. Hmm. They've actually come to the conclusion on their own and then believe it's their idea, not the idea that I planted. It. Right. Yeah. Some. I mean, and in another situation, you know, it was very interesting. I was walking in Pennsylvania uh, near a mall, and there was a truck full of um, young boys and. Um, 
you know, they passed me and they started yelling at me called, I mean, faggot. And I was, um, I, I didn't hear it. Maybe my Asian ignorance was <laughs> playing it at the time. I was like, what are you saying? I, I can't hear you. You know, they were like, faggot, faggot. They were just yelling at me. And I was like, oh, okay. And I smiled at them like this. And then they were like, what the heck? And, you know, they just drove away. And I was only after they drove away, it hit me that, oh, my God, what would have happened if they had stopped the truck and beaten me up? Um, right. And fortunately, I wasn't reacting in a very different way because probably they were wanting me to react that way. Right. And I was just smiling at them. And I literally probably even took my hand a little bit to wave also because I didn't understand what they were trying to say. I thought they were very friendly. But right. those are situations where, you know, sometimes you go through this, um, sometimes ignorance is a bliss. <laughs> oh, right. You know, but it's, it's yeah, I, I, so I, many a times, you know, I think over a period of time, I've lived in this country for more than a couple of decades, but I've learned to be patient. And sometimes I've learned to be, um, I would say the right kind of anger. Right. You need the right kind of, it's not the anger that's kind of beating up someone, but the right kind of anger to change something. If you are angry at me, I want to change the society or, you know, what is it that's making you angry so that we can have a civilized conversation? Right. Civility. There's a lack of civility between yeah. people. And those days when I have a conversation with my team colleagues, you know, we used to agree. I used to say, okay, I, I hear you, but I want to agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. And I would do it in such a simple way and uh, no one was yelling across the room. But these days, agree to disagree has gone through the window now. It's like, you better agree now. You better listen to me. And you yeah. know what, uh, Jeff? I think most of the time it's the media as well. You know, yeah. um, I'm not going to completely blame that the left side media or the right side media, but the way in which they portray um, the information that you get, you know, um, I literally stopped looking at my Facebook and reading the, my, because all my views are all about left. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, what is the right really saying about this? You know, sometimes I used to think about it and I stopped looking at it. When I posted uh, some of my articles in certain uh, places where there were people of both sides, um, I saw that they were very offensive. And I was thinking out of hundred posts, almost 10 would be absolutely crazy, like negative. Like, I hate you kind of post. And I used to think that this is what critics need. You know, you need yeah. people uh, who are actually disagreeing with you. Uh, and I was thinking, what's the worst that can happen? Are you going to come find my address and come and kill me? No. I don't think you're going to waste your ticket for that. So, you know, let me just, <laughs> let's just put your comment there and, uh, you know, let's move on. <laughs> right. And I think, that, I mean, because the, that question of like, you know, why would I choose to disengage? I think it's also really important to identify for, you know, when, when should I be telling anyone else how they should go and do their thing? Because I think a lot of times when I'm having conversations with people, people are like, well, I don't, I wouldn't want to do it that way. I'm not, I don't want to have a conversation with a Trump supporter. I would never have a conversation. And I was like, okay. You know, like I'm not trying to force my beliefs upon you. And I think a lot of times people feel like if you are trying to have this conversation, if you're that you're like, well, you, you expect me to do this as well. It's like, no, man, do you whatever, wherever you feel comfortable, because I know people 
activists that are like, I am never, that's just, I'm never going to be engaging in that. That is not a productive use of my time. I is more productive organizing the people that, you know, need to be organized. You know, um, you know, I have friends that are like, I don't even interact with, you know, white supremacist dudes anymore. Just like, they're just out of my life. And, and some people can operate that way. Okay, great. Um, but then for others that have to navigate in this world, I think we have to be open to, you know, when was the last time you had a hard conversation? What does that conversation look like? And can you have that conversation in the, in the context where you are not putting yourself in danger? Because when I'm doing this at, at companies, I ask people, I'm like, before you engage in this conversation, do you feel comfortable enough to have this without feeling like you might lose your job? Because that's a real thing for some people, right? You know, mm -hmm. but what's interesting about what you said earlier about pain and fear is like when I was having this discussion with this person that was, you know, far right leaning, she was telling me about pain and suffering of feeling ostracized. And, and the pain and suffering she explained sound exactly like a lot of my friends that are organizers for Black Lives Matter, you know? So it was like, same pain, same pain. And then she would be like demonized. She was like, well, I got attacked by BLM the other day. And I was like, someone attacked you? But like in her eyes, these people who I guess potentially represented this organization attacked her. And for me to be like, well, that's not true would be to deny her experience. And I think I, we do that so much here. It's so insulting when we're like, actually that did not happen to you. Your pain and suffering did not happen. And, and uh, you know, by ignoring someone's belief, we're actually then ignoring their experience. And that is when that becomes really harmful. And that's when they start demonizing you back, in my opinion. Right. Um, the one of the experience I wanted to share, um, because what I'm dealing with today is, um, you know, uh, one thing I was talking about is not just my being trans, but also the intersectionality is right, brown person. And uh, how am I standing up for another person, uh, especially the Asian uh, community is yep. being targeted yep. now. And especially when, um, you know, and, and it's been over the years, right? You had a lot of Muslim community, um, Sikh community being misunderstood. Um, there were lots of things that were happening. And um, I remember being teaching my Sunday school kids and I am a youth um, minister. I wouldn't say minister. I, I just conduct the youth uh, sessions for the youth in my church. And I talk to them about all the issues that are human related. So I don't uh, talk about politics. I would say that um, if you see a person getting beaten on the road, what would you do? And you could see that the younger generation seem to understand and accept much more faster yeah. than the older generation. Uh, and I'm very hopeful. That's what gives me the hope that, right. you know, you may not change the baby boomers and, um, you know, the Gen Zs. The Gen, I would say the Gen Y and Gen X. But we have a lot of millennials, almost, uh, you know, 75% of the workforce in 2025 is going to be millennials. And um, you're looking at a lot of them who are thinking differently. They're not thinking about man or woman. They're thinking about their identities. They're thinking about their, what they're passionate about, you know, environment, or they're thinking about so many other intersectional identities, which are so important right now. Right. And that's where... Um, you know, um, and I, I can give you an example even within my own family. Right? My daughter 
when she was 15 years old, she accepted me in 25 minutes. My wife, whom I have married for, you know, right now we are, we are, we are entering into our 24th year of marriage. And it took 17 years for me to convince my wife that, sweetheart, I'm different. I'm going through a problem. I'm going through a problem. And I kind of had to keep on educating her. And she was defense. She was like, no, you can change. You're not a trans person. You're mm. a businessman. You are successful. We have a wonderful life. Don't do this. You know, it's going to be difficult. And for me, um, and that's what my entire life was based out of, in a denial. I was in denial. And then I told her, sweetheart, I want you to know, let me educate you. And once I started doing that, first thing is I had to educate myself. Right. I didn't know what was going on. So first thing was, you know, how do I educate myself to educate someone who is not willing to accept me? And this was my own wife. And I didn't want to have a divorce because right. she didn't understand me. You know, this was so important and crucial for me. And so I started reading articles. I started looking at science and I started reading so much of material about people like me. And once I got to the point and I could really pull down those words that made sense, I said, sweetheart, I'm going through gender dysphoria. And that's all I told her. She said, what do you mean by that? I said, I, this is my birth gender and I have a preferred gender. And mm. I, there are people like me, one out of 100 in this world. And uh, the suicide rate in our community is almost 41% with LGBTQ. I just gave her numbers and facts. And she uh, she's an analyst. She works in a bank as a financial analyst. To her, people were like, oh, oh my God. Oh, I didn't know that. So how can I help you? Within five minutes, our conversation changed. And then I was like, I, uh, you know, so I think uh, to me, with my personal life experience, I could see that my daughter didn't need any numbers or facts. She was like, Dad, I love you in spite of who you are. Um, so don't worry about it. You know, why the difference between 17 years and 20 minutes? Why do you <laughs> start? Like, that's so fascinating. I know. I always tell the story. In fact, my daughter's going to be in one of the panels with me. Uh, to tell her perspective about how she has accepted me, which mm -hmm. is the first I'm going to do um, in next month. But um, my wife, uh, you know, I told her about this panel too. I said, I'm going to have a really a good conversation with one of my friends from Denver and another friend, uh, Jeff, we're going to have this conversation. And she said, what is it about? And I said, tough conversations, sweetheart, tough conversations, really yeah. tough conversations. And to me, uh, a family life is so easy. You know, it's like, we're just human beings. You know, it's not yeah. about... I'm the man. I'm going to bring home the bacon. Yeah. You make food ready. You wash the dishes. You do my laundry. None of that matters in a house. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a, I mean, we have a very mixed gender role within a house. And it's mostly, I would say, human humanity. Putting humanity first, putting love first is so vital in your family. And... Um, I think that's what is uh, the key in many aspects when you have friendships. My best friend from college is a Trump supporter. And uh, we invited him home and I asked him, hey, why are you doing this? What's wrong with you? And he said, hey, I just want to try something different. You know, I'm, I'm, this was before, um, you know, when Obama was um, in after Obama's period. So I was then I was sitting and listening to his viewpoint and I was thinking, OK, if you want to try, you know, go ahead and do it. Um, but at, at the point I was so angry because I was thinking we were, 
we were in the music band together we did everything together how could you betray me how could you vote for this guy and to him it was like hey i have my own brain and i can this right. is what i'm going to do <laughs> right. and and what's so interesting about that is i think a lot of times we attack people's character right instead of just addressing like okay what is their behavior right now and, you know because we really think as if they're attacking me and i remember when i was speaking to another trump supporter and it's like well do you agree with you know the, the you know going to the protest she was she i remember her telling me that she goes you should come to one of our trump rallies they're great and i was like no i'm like i mean i feel like i'd be so damn like i don't want to get hung there you know like i don't want to go to that and i don't want to go to a nascar rally like i just don't like i just yeah. don't go and she was like no they're actually really great places and i was like okay you got to tell me more right like lead with curiosity and she goes no no you know people are open they're very friendly we have these really interesting conversations and i was like what about all the confederate flags what about all the nazi flags and she's like yeah yeah those are there you know but i don't agree with those people and i was like well then why do you go if you don't agree with them and she's like this is the last bastion where I am accepted because I've been ostracized from former work colleagues. I've been ostracized from former friends. I've been ostracized from family members. So another place to go. Like this is, these are not my, my community. So if they accept me, then, then I can ignore that, that part of it. And I was like, Oh wow. I, I don't understand that. And also I, I can feel what that means to be ostracized. So really looking for the one thing that you actually identify with, that you can feel that, that's the part, that pain, where we like, we have shared pain. We have, sh we have a shared story when it comes to feeling ostracized. Mm. I think another viewpoint that I wanted to make is um, even within the left community, right? When you talk about the liberal community, what kind of um, issues that I have faced, I can tell you that. <laughs> I wanted to share another story. I mean, most of my experiences are based on my story. Right. Uh, in 2015, I came out in my community and my article came out in the local newspaper. This is, uh, you know, Celia is uh, Daniel and Daniel has come out as trans. And, you know, there was a big article and it was from my heart. You know, I just spoke and it was out there. Um, and I was so happy because, oh, wow, people, you know, I, I came out with my story and uh, the letters to the editor was terrible, terrible. And all the news articles that came out was, you're an abomination. You know, you need to go to hell. You are, you are a man in a dress who needs medical help. And I took the newspaper in my hand and every time I would see the response to the editor, it was so heartbreaking. And all of them were, you know, I didn't know what to do. And I I was thinking to myself as to, you know, where do I go from here? What do I do? Mm -hmm. And I was talking to the transgender community. I was telling them that, hey, look, um, this is what has come. And my friends said, Celia, you're not transitioned. I was like, what? What does it mean? See, we have all medically transitioned and we are, you know, the true trans people. And you're not because you have not transitioned. I said, I don't want to transition because I have other medical issues. They were like, no, you need to transition. And to me, that hit like a, it was even more worse than all these 
hurtful language. And I was thinking to myself as to you are boxing me again. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to come out as a gender non-binary and you're trying to put me in a box because mm -hmm. it worked out for you. And I told them that, no, I'm not going to transition. And this, they said, you're a cross-dresser. You know, you're not serious about your life. You just love dressing around. You love attention. You're a brown person. We're all white community people. Um, we have other issues to deal with. And I I was thinking to myself as to what on earth am I, have I gotten to? Uh -huh. And I sat in my car. I was literally crying in my car. And I told myself, you know, to hell with everything. Right. I'm going to do what I want to do. And you know what I did? I just... I took, um, I went for a gun rally here. Um, it was about the gun control, gun control rally. It was nothing about trans. And I said, I'm going to be in spaces where people need me and they mm -hmm. are not trans. And I went for that. I went for the immigration issues. I fought for the immigration issues when the children were locked in cages. I stood in spaces where I felt like I need to be there. But sometimes even within your own community, even within the LGBTQ community, you can feel that you don't belong there. Right. That's how I felt. Um, and Caitlin Jenner just lives a couple of exits from uh, from where I live. You know, she's in Malibu. We are in uh, Westlake area. So I kind of sensed that a lot of children were coming out and they were saying, you know, but Caitlin Jenner is um, a Republican. You know, we should. she's a trans, but she's a Republican. We shouldn't support her. And I was thinking to myself that I wanted to write a letter to her saying that, how does it feel for you to come out honestly and still feel rejected within your own community? You know, I, and I know she felt that. I mean, I feel sorry for her when, when you know, with all the ostracizing within the community happened. But um, that was a very good learning for me um, as well. well. Yeah, I, I mean, you bring up a really good point about <laughs> about what I reference as the get out racists, right? See, I think I think it's really easy for one to like, you know, demonize someone that's like overtly racist, you know, everyone that has tiki torches. But it's the get out racists that concern me, the people that would vote for Obama for a third time, you know, the people that consider themselves, you know, far, you know, on the left, right? But but aren't willing to actually give up I know a lot of people that are like working in the DEI space that there, there are people that are working in the DEI space that actually want to change power dynamics. And then there's others that are just doing it to appease those companies, but they don't want to actually remove any power from the people that are in power, right? Because that means you have to actually not, you have to take a step back. This is why I respect John so much. He's taking a step back right now and be like, yo, y'all do your thing. Because like, this is not my that. There's not enough people actually doing that. And I think, you know, for a lot of people on the left, we have to be looking at ourselves of like, what, how are we calling ourselves out on our own bullshit? Are we actually taking our own advice or are we just getting really good at, at telling everyone else how, how bad they are? And, and my friend uh, Damien um, Taylor told me this analogy that I just loved about, um, uh, what is it, allyship mm -hmm. or performative allyship. And he was like, basically, it's like this. The oppressed is on the first floor of an apartment. The oppressors on the second floor with, you know, potential allies. And then the oppressors on the, on the second floor just allow a flood to happen and they flood the whole first floor. 
So then someone comes down from the second floor and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's flooded. Oh, let me help you clean it up. Oh, this is horrible. Let me run a GoFundMe campaign. Maybe I'll post social media about how no one should ever flood floors on the first floor. And the whole time that oppressed person is like, the issue is not my issue. Like I shouldn't have to deal with this. This is your stuff, but it's coming down to me and I have to deal with it. And, you know, why don't you just handle it upstairs and talk to your neighbor or your or your family member to actually address that issue instead of coming down here and being like, I'm your best friend when you really are not addressing the true issues that are going on. You're really not addressing the true power dynamics that exist. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we actually doing that or are we just being very performative, you know, and and resharing a post and being like, well, I'm done for the day. My activism is done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know the passive activism is something that I um, I talk about that, oh, I'm not going to eat in Chick-fil-A because they don't support LGBTQ. Or, um, you know, I don't want to go to this place because this person uh, gave money to Trump. I'm not going to eat in McDonald's. My point is not that. I mean, that may be working for you, but that is not activism. Activism is beyond that, you know, going out and really getting wet, you know, standing out on the street corner or really making a difference in the lives of people. And if you want to support Black Lives Matters and, you know, you need to be out there, you need to be in spaces where um, our Asian community, you need to be in spaces where they are not there. Yeah. And um, the first thing I learned from my friend uh, was I, I asked him, you know, I, um, I'm a brown person. How can I be an ally for you? And he said, um, Celia, don't be my savior. Right. Don't be my savior. Right. And the second thing I'm telling you, second uh, point here is be my mouthpiece in spaces where I'm not there. And that's all I need from you. And uh, of course, he said, you know, educate yourself about Black Lives Matters. And I started reading these articles and I was... I was a big advocate, my entire family, my wife, my daughter, we were all an entire uh, advocating for the Black Lives Matters within the South Asian community. And uh, while I was working in those spaces, you know, the other issues started off, right? The Blue Lives Matter started off. And uh, here I am having a friend and I have been to LAPD and spoken to LAPD about trans rights issues. And I know they are compassionate people in LAPD too. There are some people who don't understand but I went to the police station and I literally educated them. And so to me, lives matter, of course. Yeah. I understand about the Black Lives Matter is so important. It's, But to me, I cannot completely throw the police force out of the window and say, you know, they don't, they don't matter at all. Because my friend who is trans is an LAPD. And he reached out to me and said, Celia, I am an LAPD. And I'm having so many problems because the trans community hates us right now mm. and we are going through a lot of mental stress so can you uh, recommend a few therapists who will be compassionate to the mm. police force mm. now here i am sitting across intersectionalities about uh -huh. you know so many things and i'm thinking about how can i help you and yeah. i got a lot of therapists I, I i reached out to my therapist friends and i said we need to help them right and a lot of them stepped forward stood uh, and they helped uh, the community you know, I think uh, there are times when I always say this. I, I didn't choose to be a transgender activist. Though I fought for my advocacy, 
I came out as a transgender activist, but I turned into a human rights activist. Mm -hmm. To me, uh, that mattered more. Um, so that's what I tell the trans community or the Asian community or the brown community that, you know, it's there are lots of issues that matter to us. But if we can open our eyes and help people, if you see a person on the floor uh, um, because they just stumbled and they just fell down, the first instinct is to go and help them out. Hey, are you okay? Can I help you? Mm -hmm. If the person was carrying a confederate flag and he had stumbled and fell, fell down on the floor, on the street, I would still go down and I'll help him and say, hey, are you okay? Right. And then he would look at me thinking, you're a brown person and right. I'm supposed to hate you, but right. you're asking me to help right. you. Wow, you have sent the message to him. Because you're yeah. leading from a place of humanity and you're leading from a place of love, right? And yeah. And I think we have to explore how do I, how am I, you know, I would ask the listeners, are you actually doing that now? Like, are you actually attempting to have hard conversations? Are you actually putting yourself in places where you are the minority, right? You know, when was the last hard conversation you actually had about a specific, you know, about certain issues, whether that is currently what's happening in the Asian American community or what's happening with BLM? Right. And then thinking about, you know, well, is this does this work? Does this not work? I've seen the positive impact that this has had. Right. That that mm -hmm. I have like when you lead from a place of humanity, as you mentioned earlier with Daryl Dave Davis and him being able to get 200 KKK members to leave, just like in my own experience, me simply leading from a place of, of trying to be curious and try to understand when I was having that conversation you know, with that person that, that I disagreed with completely on that YouTube page, other people were like, this is really interesting. I think I'm going to have a conversation with someone that I've, that I disagree with just showing that this is possible, that there can actually be a respect, some level of respect from two people that disagree because right now the echo chambers are so well established that I don't think people believe they can even sit down and like watch Fox News without like boiling, right? And if we're at that point, it's gonna be really difficult for us to ever come to a point where we can try to understand one another and see each other's humanity. One thing that I'd love for you guys to touch on before we wrap up here is, you know, you've, you've definitely shared that and you believe in compassionate conversation, but certainly I'm sure there are times in your life when you still decide, you know what, not right now, right? Right now, we're going to go ahead and block this person, ignore that comment, or maybe even draw a hard line and say, that's not okay. What you just said is not okay, right? So in your own life, how do you how do you make that call, right? What's your advice to someone on how to make the call of when to engage with compassionate conversation, when to just ignore them, block them, cut them off, and maybe when to draw a hard line and call out bad behavior, right? Because I'm sure you've done at least some of each in your life. Yeah, yeah. How do you make that determination? I think you have to... I would think you, I have to trust my instincts of like, okay, what's the goal here? Is, is it going to be productive for me to have this conversation right now? Am I in a safe space to have this conversation? Right? Like as Celia talked about earlier, you know, in a charged protest environment where there's an, an anti-protest and a protest, 
not the best place to be like, well, let's just all of a sudden have this conversation because everyone's everyone's charged and people are cheering and be like, yeah, get them, get them. So like you're you're not setting yourself up for a lot of success in that situation. Right. Mm-hmm. So are, am I in a safe space? Do I feel like I'm coming from a place of understanding? Um, and and where am I at mentally? Because sometimes I'm not, I don't have the patience. Sometimes I'm just not ready that day to like deal with that. So it's better for me not to show up and try to like feign, you know, that I'm open when I'm not um, and just, and just be patient. I think Celia said it best of just like this, we're thinking about this for the long game, right? We're talking about having hundreds of conversations over the next like decade in order to heal these wounds. We're not gonna be able to do that. Everyone wants to do it like right now, but they also wanna be right while also healing the wounds. It's like, you can't do that. We have to, you have to check your own privilege, your own power, your own, your own, uh, um, conception of reality and really question whether there's a way in which I can find compromise with this person or not. And if I'm not there, then, then I follow my intuition and, and trust my instincts. I think um, in my opinion, uh, there is um, there are two kinds of people. Um, you can always educate people who are ignorant, but you cannot educate people who are arrogant. No. So um, I have come across both kinds of people. And if, if they are ignorant, you can tell them that, hey, this is what it is. They will understand. But if they're arrogant, um, it's they're so bigoted that they cannot listen to you anymore. And um, they just want to thrust their opinion on you. And recently, there was a trans person who actually unfriended me because she didn't like my viewpoint on certain things, mm. which I didn't agree upon because... Um, you know, there are people like that too. And that was a political viewpoint. And, you know, sometimes there are people even within our own community who might not like you. Um, so it's important to know when to draw boundaries, when to be um, diligent in what you do. I remember there was a man who actually um, wrote in my post when I spoke about something. He said, hey, great job, man. He mentioned that in my post. And I was so offended. I was thinking... Do I confront him, tell him that, hey, you're wrong. You shouldn't call me man. Do I look like a man to you? And this is on LinkedIn. And I was so upset for almost like a week. And then I thought, let me wait for some more time. And I already typed in a message nicely here saying that, you know, you are so this one, you cannot do this. And I typed in an email and I waited and I waited. Uh, And then I put a question mark saying man and a question mark. And I left it. After two weeks, that man responded saying, Oh, I'm so sorry. I just address everybody as man. I, I'm so sorry. I, he left it. And for me, I thought, oh, my God, if I would have written this email and if I'm sorry, if this message would have probably created a. Now I knew he was a conservative person, but he at least respected me uh, at that point, And that mattered a lot to me. I think uh, we need to be patient. Sometimes we have the time to do it, um, but um I've been in a situation where uh, there was a, a 65-year-old lady. Um, after my speech, she came and I sat in her table. I was sitting next uh, in our in our little circle. She looked at me and said, "Oh, so you are a man who dresses like this, and you have all your male parts." And I was like, "Oh my God, really?" And I was 
I was just, you know, spinning my eyes like that. And then the the women in our table, they all jumped on her and I was like, how dare you talk like that, Celia? She just said, she just told about her. And you should have seen that lady's response. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've never seen a trans person. And this is the first time I'm seeing you. And I was, I, I started laughing and I said, yeah, you're right. I am a man. Uh, and there are people like me who are going through a lot of these issues. And now I identify as a trans woman. I was born as a man. And she said, Celia, don't misunderstand me. I am learning. And I, after the meeting, I spoke to her and I felt that her eyes were filled with compassion. But mm. I found that ignorance sometimes are people, you know, there are people who are ignorant, we can change. But there are people on uh, LinkedIn or even on Facebook and even in person, I've experienced them. The arrogance is right on you. Right. And uh, they're looking at me thinking, so I, I've seen a lot of South Asians. I, I don't know if South Asians are listening to this call. The first thing they look at me and they think, oh my God, so you are in this call too? You are a hijra and you are in a call like this? You cannot have a life like this. You should be in the streets begging. You know, I've had a lot of look from people from South Asian community too. You know why? Because there's bias all the time. And there's a bias. They want to box you in those boxes. And when you are out of the box and you're doing something that is more um, different from what they are used to, Mm -hmm. you're actually creating, um, they, you, you're confusing them, you know, because right. of the work that they have created. And when you we start speaking out of that, it widens their horizon and they start looking at you with empathy. Yeah. And I always tell the community that when you look at a trans person, don't have empathy. I don't need empathy. I need empowerment. Mm. That's very important. So these conversations, even with any uh, Republican uh, group or independent or democratic group, my conversation is I have seen a lot of people in all these circles who are ignorant about the people of color, who are ignorant about a lot of things happen because they're brought and brought up that way. Um, so I've seen people in all sides willing to learn, unlearn certain things, willing to learn and help. And those are the people who are real humanitarians. You know, they may not agree with all the policies and stuff, but they are at least willing to come to that neutral zone. Yeah, and what I hear is, is that by you simply existing sometimes, you are expanding the paradigm for some people. And some people are like, okay, I'm, I'm open to this reality. And others are so scared. They're so scared of what that might be and how they may not have power in this new normal, right? And I just want to respond to the part about the assumptions. Assumptions is what gets us into so much trouble. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what assumptions are we currently making that make us always the hero in our story and everyone else the villain? And then the more we're able to actually ask that, I think the more then we are going to be able to conversations that we didn't think were possible before. Cool. Well, thanks so much, guys. We're, we're up on time here, so we'll wrap, but obviously we could keep talking on these topics forever. <laughs> you have so many fantastic and in some cases horrifying stories um, to share, and I appreciate you opening up and sharing those. Um, and, and, and to both of you, thanks for having this conversation. You know, this is uh, a very complex, nuanced topic, but it's so important to cover. Right. And myself, you know, I don't know about your past, but for me, I very much used to be in the camp of, you know, 
the best way to deal with ignorant people is to just cut them out of your life altogether or to attack them and berate them, right? And it's only been recently that I've realized, hey, wait a minute, while that might feel good, the impact that leaves is actually the opposite of what I want, right? It actually makes it less likely that these people ever see the light and actually makes them more dangerous because, you know, as you shared, Jeff, that person felt so at home in Trump rallies because everyone on her in her life and her family who was on the left had ostracized her. So it's like, all right, well, let's look at the real impact of the ostracization. Did it make her see the light and say, oops, I was wrong. Let me come back over to your camp. Or did yeah. it drive her further into the other camp, right? So I appreciate you guys having these conversations uh, with me and uh, you know, my commitment to you and everyone out there for members of marginalized groups is that I won't just step away and leave this problem. Because the truth is, if I see transphobia on display and say, well, I won't stand for that block, I've now made that person disappear from my world. But guess what? They're still in the world and there's still trans people out there who are gonna have to deal with their crap because I refuse to deal with it today. They're gonna have to deal with it tomorrow, right? So even though, like you mentioned, Jeff, there's no instant switch where I'm gonna have one conversation and change someone entirely, I'm at least gonna do my part to plant that seed so that maybe one day this person can have their eyes opened and not be as big a danger to the world as they were before. So thanks for this conversation, guys. Any Thanks closing words from you guys are welcome. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you.